It used to be that cash was king, but all over the world, digital payments are taking over. European and Asian countries have been embracing new payment tech for years, with a few countries having already gone virtually cashless. But in the US, it seems that despite our tech-savvy nature, the country is still set in its check-using, cash-based and couponing ways. Well, and think about coupons as well, right? This country's huge on coupons compared to elsewhere that I've seen. Somebody else I interviewed mentioned the American obsession with couponing. And I know we've got some reputations overseas, but really, coupon. <laughs> so that was interesting. I didn't know about that until I came here. Or standing in a supermarket checkout line and having someone pull out their checkbook to pay for their groceries. It's something I've never seen before. We can all relate to being stuck behind that guy in his checkbook at the checkout. However, the pandemic has already supercharged contactless card adoption. And soon we could be just as annoyed getting stuck behind a card payer as we were a check payer. As more financial institutions and merchants offer and accept new forms of digital payments, the way we buy is evolving. And with it, the way we manage our money is changing too. Matt Collicote, VP of Strategy for Cards and Money Movement at FIS, says that new payment technology won't just make paying for groceries quicker, but it'll give us all kinds of new controls over our finances. Yeah, that immediacy is very important. And I think, you know, across all of these things we've been talking about, fraud or, or replacement cards or, or notifications or whatever, that immediacy is really where it's changing. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. In this series, we'll be exploring the trends that are already transforming credit unions and the technologies they'll need in order to prosper in a brave new payment landscape. I'm your host, Erin Dangler. And today, Card Payment Evolved. We'll be talking with Matt Collicote about the emerging technologies in digital payments. What will the future of card control look like? How can we use it to beat the fraudsters? And how can credit unions embrace this technology to enhance what already makes them great, their personal service? But first, let's get up to speed and find out what's changed in card payments in the last decade. Let's talk about cards versus digital payment technologies. What's happened in the past 10 years? Let's catch us up to date and then we can move forward. Well, and it's interesting, right? So what's happened in the US in the last 10 years is not exactly the same as what's happened in the world in the last 10 years because the US sits kind of at a slightly different pace. Really the biggest change to the physical card, the plastic, is going chip. And that chip really just makes that card harder to counterfeit. And so it's changed a lot of card present fraud but, you know, the fraudsters didn't go, oh, wow, you've introduced this. Now I'm going to go and get a real job, right? They just moved to the next weakest link in the chain, which is card not present fraud. It has allowed us there for, though, to kind of concentrate on that fraud rather than sort of having to fight multiple battles across multiple fronts. So that's a big difference. I think the next biggest, like, physical improvement in the last 10 years to the cards is the contactless, which, again, we saw taking off in other countries maybe a lot more than the US. And a lot of that's got to do with the infrastructure in the US spread over so many financial institutions. 
to change every merchant reader out there to be a contactless reader is a much bigger deal than in some smaller countries. Contactless has lagged a little in the US compared to elsewhere in the world for good reason. But I think by the same token, COVID now has massively accelerated that. I don't want to touch a keypad that 50 other people have touched just today, right? So maybe, you know, that's the push that needs to get the to get us over the line on that. So contactless, I think, is going to really start to take off a lot more in the US. What about, so what are the similarities then between um, what functions do cardholders and smartphone payment technologies currently offer that are similar? A lot of people say, well, what's the difference between reaching into my left pocket and pulling out my card and reaching into my right pocket and pulling out my phone, right? If the experience is virtually the same, then why should I start, you know, getting into this this phone technology? And the first thing I will say is even a couple of seconds make a difference at a big retailer. If you can get someone through the checkout five seconds faster because their phone's already in their hand and they're not going through their, their purse or their wallet to get anything out, that's actually a huge improvement, right? Especially when you're putting thousands of people through a day. When you're paying sort of, uh, I guess, card not present on e-commerce, it's the same in that I either typically have to go and find my card to remember what the card number is. The, the one difference is that if I'm shopping via my phone or my tablet or whatever, it can pre-populate that information for me. So, you know, it's a little faster on the checkout. Now, I'm not holding anyone else up when I'm, I'm paying online, but you know, the number of cart abandonments where people say, I've got to go upstairs and get my plastic. I'm not going to bother, right? I'll, I'll buy it some other time. So that's, you know, it's a very small difference, but it actually translates to, I think, quite a large kind of difference. Yeah, you talked about um, abandoning your payment because you got to go find your cart. Guilty as charged, you know? <laughs> I mean, maybe it saves me money in the long run, but oh God, it's pain. Um, and all of the information they need. So you've mentioned that U.S. customers haven't adopted new digital payment technologies as much as other countries. Part of part of be the fact that we're just a larger country, but we're also just re- not U.S. not Americans in general. But we're reluctant to change. Nobody likes change. So what other reasons are we reluctant to move away from cards? Well, and, and you're right. It is. A, it is. And like speaking from a, a non-U.S. person living in the U.S there is very much an attitude of you can't tell me what to do, whether you're, whether you're big business or whether you're... No, no. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if you look at, you know, some countries saying, right, no more checks or, or India saying, right, we're going to get rid of certain denominations of, of bills, that would be much trickier to do in the US because people say, I like my checks, don't take them away. And again, because it's such a large market, if a couple of large players decide, say, not to offer checks, for example, people who like it won't just go again, oh, okay, and move on to the next, you know, available thing. They'll gravitate to the customers, that are the, the merchants or the banks that are still offering the service that they want. So there's this risk of losing a large part, whereas in other countries where they kind of carte blanche say, we're shutting down this old technology, you know, checks or, or ACH type of movements and we're moving to faster payments, there is no loss of customers because there's not this market that moves suddenly somewhere else. So again, it's I think a lot of it has to do with the size of the US market, um, both in you know the ability to have these niche markets um, and, and the ability to change such big monoliths of, of infrastructure, et cetera, that are out there. Another great example of that is you know not using pins on credit cards. Right? Virtually every system would allow you to issue a pin on a credit card, but People don't want to change the systems that they have at the moment. Currently at the gas stations, you use your zip code, which is 
you know, next to signature, the most unsafe way of identifying who I am, right? I dropped my wallet. Well, it's so funny that you you bring up gas stations because I was going to mention that when you talked about having to enter all the numbers in. I swear I feel like they need every piece of information about me just so I can fill up my tank of gas. And I don't think I've seen contactless payment at gas stations. It's certainly possible. There's some that are rolling it out, but it is, there's a number of systems that live in a gas station around monitoring. So it, it is a reasonably complex change. We should see it soon because fraud in gas stations is super high because, again, the fraudsters have gone to the lowest common denominator, which is I've got this card, you know, I'm going to get pinged if I go in and actually have to dip it and put a pin in in a store. So I'm going to go to a gas station where I don't have to put a pin in and I can fill up with gas and no one can trace me. The um, regulators are kind of trying to force merchants to do it because the bank issuers are the ones who suffer the fraud, not the gas station. So they're trying to push that fraud back onto the gas station, which will then obviously over incent them to replace all of their things. But it is such a big effort that it's been delayed a number of times. Well, how can they enforce that? So the way you enforce it is you say, if there's fraud at a gas station, it's the gas station's responsibility, not the person who issued the car. It becomes their responsibility. And this is often the way, you know, with with the, the um, second factor authentication online and all those kind of things. It's that liability shift back to the merchant that eventually forces the merchant to step up and basically take their share of the responsibility of identifying that customer properly before they give them the goods. Well, and so you're talking about this liability shift, and I guess some of it can be about control. And that's one of sort of the emerging trends we're seeing in cards is card control based on the user. What are the limits right now on cards in comparison with digital payments in terms of controlling? Uh, well, a card without a digital app attached to it of any kind, you know, can be kind of used anywhere. Someone finds it, they can go somewhere and use it. You know, there's a pin on some cards, but it's pretty open, right? And not only that, I don't necessarily know that you've used the card. I don't know that I've lost my wallet for a couple of days, right? Some people go two or three days without realizing it. They go about two or three minutes without checking that they have their phone. So, There's a huge difference there in the immediacy of that. But also, if you have your digital wallet and if it's telling you every time a transaction happens, you can have the best fraud detection system in the world. If the fraudster does a transaction, which is very similar to where you are, the other one is then letting cardholders really decide, where do I use my card, right? Some cardholders are worried about online fraud. So the ability to, to with with an app to say, don't allow any e-commerce transactions, And then next week when I want to buy something online, I turn it on, I make the purchase, I turn it off again. And I'm not worried in the intervening time that somebody's got my details and they're buying, you know, gift cards or untraceable, you know, gaming money or whatever it is online. So that ability for the cardholder to say, this is my specific spend pattern, these kind of things they can lock down. And it's a really personalised fraud profile at a cardholder level, which is super powerful as for stopping fraud. Right. And I don't even have to make a phone call. Like usually if you lose your card, you have to call a 1-800 number. It takes a couple or it takes what, 10 days to get a new card. You have to reprogram everything in your computer or, you know, attach to all your accounts. Right. Now, when we have um, bank clients now that can replace your card in your online wallet, in your Android Pay or Apple Pay wallet without even talking to you. So if you're on vacation in Singapore and your card's been compromised, they can block your old card, reprovision the new one to your phone without having a conversation with you. And if you're over there tapping your phone, you don't even know it's been replaced. Your holiday is uninterrupted, right? Whereas if you're only using a physical plastic, 
guess what? You're now stranded in Singapore and you can't pay for your hotel room. You can't get out of the country. You know, it's a much more immediate kind of solution. So yeah, there's a lot of advantages there. And the last one I would say, sorry, for those controls is that we're getting quite smart now around actually geofencing the phone and saying, well, the phone is in this, you know, three mile radius. They're shopping outside of that three mile radius. That could be a problem. So for a cardholder saying, only let my card be used in a present transaction if it's in the same radius as my phone, that's a really powerful way of shopping as well because I don't have to keep updating it. With all the benefits that digital payment technology brings, it's hard to think that customer stubbornness and the size of the US are the only things holding it back. After all, a lot of this tech has been available for years. So what's stopping the US from embracing these new technologies? And how have other countries benefited from welcoming digital payments? The Scandinavian countries, um, you know, have gone so cash-free, it's unbelievable. And, and, and it really just comes down to, you've got to get every single merchant out there to be able to accept a card payment, right? And be able to accept a contactless or, or, a, or a mobile card payment. And, and again, if you're Denmark, right, it's a lot easier to do than if you're the USA. But Scandinavian countries are, are absolutely leading the way. The Asia-Pacific countries, Australia, New Zealand, but also all of those Asian countries. I mean, we were, we were doing, you know, buy now, pay later for Asian countries 10, 15 years ago. And now that's really just starting to take off in other countries around the world. And some of it is driven by customers wanting it. Some of it is driven by underlying legislative changes that you don't even know is driving that technology. So sometimes it's legislation, sometimes it's pandemics, sometimes it's customers seeing what happens elsewhere in the world and asking for it. There's often different sort of moves for this, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a perfect storm at the moment in the US that there's a number of things happening that is really getting people to try some of these technologies for the first time. Right. Well, usually once the technology changes, it's here to stay. And so, well, let's go into the future a little bit of card control. Um, talking another thing that my husband loves is saving money. So <laughs> how can uh, a card tied to a digital wallet give customers more control over their own spending? Can they save money? Well, you know, they say knowing you have a problem is, is the first step, right? <laughs> if, if you're buying everything on cash or if you're seeing your spending, you know, a month later, uh, when your statement, your paper statement comes out or whatever it is, you know, you don't necessarily know that you've overspent on going out to restaurants or bars or whatever it is that you, you decided this month, you know, you were going to be good. Whereas that, again, that digital classification and that digital wallet can start giving you warnings. Hey, you realize you've already spent 50%. What if you said you were going to spend, you know, in department stores, you've already spent 50% this month. And I know about that halfway through the month. So just the knowledge of what you're spending helps you potentially do that. And with, you know, a lot of these card control apps, you can you can block how much you spend. You can actually stop your card from working if you want to, although far more popular is the warnings rather than the blocks because you don't want to be sort of embarrassed at the, at the counter as such. But, you know, if you think about it, if you're giving your son or daughter a card to use to buy gas because they're away at college, right, maybe locking it down so that they can only buy gas on the card or they can only spend a certain amount and then after that they're on their own, right? There's a... There's a lot of card controls in there that you can use to control spending. Without getting that SKU data passed back in that authorization, it's really hard to stop in real time. You can really only report on it after the fact, which again is almost immediate, and that is a better step than where we were. But really, I think 
there is a new format of authorization that's that's been slowly coming out, which is ISO 222. It's a message that comes through when you do an authorization that just has this huge extra data packet in it, if you think of it that way, where from that merchant terminal, you can now start to put extra information in there about what was spent, how it was spent, what kind of goods were in that. And once we start getting that populated, then the downstream systems can start saying yes or no, you can buy this, you can't buy this. And I think that's where we're going to see the next big jump in the way that card controls are used. That's huge. I I mean, I really like the idea of the warning that comes Ahead of it, because that's, I mean, it's kind of like when, you know, you go to Starbucks and you want to get a cinnamon roll and you see that it's a thousand calories. You know, once they started putting the calories out there, I made different choices about what I bought to eat. There's no point telling you later when you get on the scales, right, Right. that that, that I had a thousand (laughs) calories in it. It's too late. And it's the same at the end of the month when you've kind of, you've spent all your money and you're like, well, how did I get here again? Right. So, yeah, that immediacy is very important. And I think, you know, across all of these things we've been talking about, part of the, you know, fraud or, or replacement cards or, or notifications or whatever, that immediacy is really where it's changing and it's really changing the way people are behaving. What about the benefits around recurring payments? That's something I've had a conversation a lot with my friends around subscriptions. I'm, I'm kind of over the subscription culture that we have where now you can't even... You can't even just buy Microsoft software. You have to subscribe to it. And then, you know, you do the free trial and you forget about it. And then five months later, you found out you've paid for it for the last five months and not used it. Right. And, and you know, wouldn't it be great if every time you logged on to look at your your um, last 20 transactions online, the, the recurring ones were really highlighted so that it doesn't take you five months to realize it. Or when the recurring payment goes through, you get pinged immediately. It says you just paid Microsoft $9.95. I think... The, the subscription kind of model is not going away anytime soon. It's the way millennials and younger people want to pay for stuff. They don't want to pay $500 to, to have something permanently, but they're happy to pay 10 bucks a month for something, right? So with it, though, hand in hand comes exactly what you're saying, the ability to turn that off when I don't want it, right? Otherwise, you may as well pay the $500 or whatever it is. So yes, I think for recurring payments, it's both the, the, the immediacy of being told about it is important. The ability to shut it off is important. The ability, to your point earlier, to be able to shut off my recurring payment from one source, not have to go into each online merchant and update my details when I want to stop doing it, to be able to actually do it from the card is a really interesting way as well. So, I mean, we've had this, this conversation where you know, over the last few years, you know, cardholders coming back and saying, I had to say my card was stolen because it was the only way I could get the gym to stop charging me. <laughs> I've told them I want to cancel it and they say, yes, yes. And then next month they charge me again, right? So they, they cancel the card, which a bank obviously doesn't want you to go through for the pain of it, but also the, you know, the, the risk that you then move on to someone else's card. So the ability within the card processing system for the cardholder to say ABC gyms is no longer approved. And when that transaction comes through, declining it without you know, having to have the customer be involved every month to check that it's happened, et cetera. So it's it's a lot easier to do it from a single place, to monitor it from a single place, to do it the same way. So I, I do see that as becoming a real service that customers are looking for. Oh, you're speaking my language. <laughs> or maybe you've like been spying on me and seen all the mistakes I've made over the no, last year. You, <laughs> you're absolutely, you know, as uh, you, you're not Robinson Crusoe, as they say, right? You're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone in this. This is very common. It's a common complaint. And and to go to this subscription culture, often the customer service and the follow-up and the cleanup that happens with with changes to the way people pay for things, 
you know, comes afterwards. And that's what we're seeing now. And again, the smart thing to do and, and the advantage that maybe the US has of not being bleeding edge on some of this new technology is to not just put it in and, and suffer the same mistakes that every other country that's done it has suffered, but to see what the aftermath is, to see what the additional customer service and the and the and the cardholder feedback is for some of this stuff, and to put it live with those things in place. So it's a brilliant experience from day one. That's really you know the holy grail. And forward thinking banks um, and credit unions are going to need to do that if they want to compete with fintech companies who are getting into payments because fintech companies absolutely think about those kind of things, right? So what's um, what about tying into loyalty reward programs? Because that's kind of a non-negotiable for cardholders. It is, but it's interesting that, uh, so who funds the loyalty? Now at the moment, Interchange mostly funds loyalty. We're getting to the position where uh, merchants are prepared to fund loyalty. That means you're going to come back to my store. I'm prepared to give up a little bit of my retail value to get you in. But what we're seeing is that customers don't want to be locked into a reward type. I don't want to get points that I can only use to redeem stuff from this catalogue. There's nothing that I want in the catalogue, right? Customers are now saying, why can't my loyalty points be used for cryptocurrency, right? Why can't I get a little bit of Bitcoin every time I use my card? And we're seeing, you know, in recent years, cashback became more popular because then I can do whatever I want with the loyalty. And if we get back to the the way millennials think as well, they're not necessarily saving up air mile points for that vacation that they're going to take in two years because they're thinking about, well, what have you done for me recently? Whereas if you're doing cashback and you're told in real time, hey, that transaction you did, you just earned $3 back on that. That's actually, with certain demographics, a much better retention program by incrementally telling you what you just got back. But at the same time, they want to be able to customise the card to behave exactly how they want it to behave, right? And the answer to that is to have simpler basic card products and then wrap them with intuitive technology like card control apps, like loyalty that you can turn off and turn on and you get special offers with certain clients or if you live in certain areas that are, that are really germane to you and the way you work. Uh, and therefore, you end up with a personalised card but the thing that buys and sells every day and calculates your interest rates and, you know, et cetera, is, is very simple. Interesting. So the card payment tech of the future isn't just about payments. It's also about security, control over finances, even rewards. And accessing these benefits is as easy as unlocking your phone. But where do credit unions fit into this evolved payment ecosystem? Where are they now? And what do they need to do to capitalize on this new technology? 2019 was actually, it seems like 40 years ago, but 2019 (laughs) was a very interesting year with three big consolidations of card processes in the market, right? So three very big deals. And really the upshot of that is that your functionality that's available to you as an organization If you're with one of the big providers, whether you're a very small community bank or credit union or whether you're the biggest bank in the country, the functionality is there if you want to use it. Where I think um, credit unions are probably lagging is that they have a lot of legacy processes and and systems, right? I'll never forget having a conversation with a small credit union where I said, why are you using this card system? You know, it was written in 1995. And they're like, yeah, but it was written by Trevor and Trevor banks with us, right? And we don't want to upset Trevor. It's a very different mindset, right? And it's fabulous. It really is fabulous. And in the US, you know, community banks and credit unions are bigger than they are anywhere in the world because people like that personal touch. But credit unions need to work out how to continue to provide that personal touch 
without staying as, as you know, in olden days as far as processes and procedures are concerned. And I think a huge risk to credit unions at the moment is that servicing model change because a huge advantage of credit unions was there's a branch just down the corner, right? And I don't have to sit on a phone for 20 minutes to talk to someone who doesn't know who I am to try and move money from one account to another. I just go down and see, you know, Joe at my local branch and she moves it across for me. But with COVID and people not going out and people being locked down and people realising that I can move money between accounts via an app on my phone while I'm sitting on the sofa watching Netflix, that's a risk to that, that, that advantage that credit unions have. So they need to think about new ways of servicing customers that still provides that really personal touch, right? Because that's what their customers love, but maybe doing it remotely. Right. So it might come down to, again, we mentioned this earlier, is education. Yeah. And also all of this technology actually frees up those who work in these financial institutions to be able to tend to... Uh, some of the bigger fires or the more important issues and not have to deal with all the minutiae. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it, it, taking away a whole lot of calls to a contact centre or a whole lot of people coming into the branch with, with as you say, minutiae, right? Providing that extra information in real time frees up that customer service agent to deal with the real problem I'm having about, you know, maybe not being able to pay my card on time or, you know, financial difficulty or thinking about getting out a business loan and one of my options, you know, it does take that minutia away if it's used properly and it frees people up for what they're best at, which is those complex interactions. And again, where credit unions shine is personalising that and making that personal just for me. Um, so yes, if they can use the online technology to take away the non-personal stuff that customers don't need to care about and get more and more focus on that personal stuff, that's going to be a huge win for them. So what steps can credit unions take to get ready for this evolving payment technology? I think they, first of all, need to look at the data. How many people are, are getting our card but not using it? How many people are calling the call centre when they've already downloaded the mobile app, right? So understanding the dynamic of the way their cardholders work and then looking at what's probably some very low-hanging fruit and some education, as you say, to say, I, I noticed you came in, you know, three times last week to do things that you can do on the mobile app. Would you like me now to sit down and spend 30 minutes with you taking you through the app? Because that, you know, is, is going to be longer than I was going to spend with you, but it's going to save time later on for you to come in and just deal with the real problems. So I think they really need to very closely look at how their cardholders are behaving, how they're behaving in branch, online, et cetera, and understand where that is costing them money for no real advantage. So as we wrap the program up, what do you think are going to be the biggest advances in card payment technologies going forward? So fast forward quite a long way, I think you are no longer going to have payment mechanisms at all, right? You're not going to have a card that you take with you. You're not even going to have a specific card that you maybe load into an app, okay? So, uh, and everywhere I go, I park my car in a parking garage. It knows that this month my payment mechanism is this. It tags my car going in. It's something that I've got on file. I and mean, we're seeing that trend already, right? If you look at your, your statement, at the end of each month, the number of transactions on that statement where you didn't make a choice as to whether you use this card or this card, right? It's, you know, Netflix and your insurance payments and, you know, uh, Uber Eats. You don't make a choice. You've already made that choice six months ago when you loaded a card into an app. So I think 
physical plastics will disappear. And I know we've said that for a long time. It, it, we're getting there now. We really are. I mean, I, I went on a business trip to Singapore two years ago. I got to the airport and realised I forgot my wallet, right? And I called my wife and she wasn't going to get there before the plane took off. It was, a, it was a whole thing. And I thought, well, let's see how I go. I've got my phone. I've got my watch. My cards are loaded in there. I didn't notice that I didn't have my wallet the whole time I was there. So Singapore, you know, Australia, even the UK, the Netherlands, you can literally go months without touching cash or picking out a, a physical card. So it comes down to from the credit unions, from the banks, how good is the financial product you've developed, not how good is the piece of plastic that's sitting in your wallet. Right, that was actually what I was going to say to wrap it up, because our, our very first um, episode of Financial Futures was about, are we going to be a totally cashless society? And I was going to ask you, are we going to be a cardless society? And it seems like that's very, very possible. We will. Again, I think the US will lag that, right? Because we can't even turn a $1 bill into a $1 coin. I mean, you're still feeding these notes into vending machines here. And, and the reason cited for not getting rid of the $1 bill, one of them was that all of the vending machines would have to change and the people who own them lobby not to have the $1 bill. And that kind of power in the hands of certain industries um, is bypassed in a lot of other countries by the government or by uh, legislation, et cetera. So I think that will lag longer in the US but it will happen. It will absolutely happen. And it'll happen absolutely in our lifetimes. And I think probably in five to 10 years, you will be in a situation where you think, wow, I, do I need to get cash? What do I need cash for? Yeah. Well, I think you have just about covered anything. Is there anything else, any other words of wisdom you want to share with us before we part? My only other word of wisdom is, is keep an eye out for the stuff that's out there, right? Because there's some banks and credit unions that are doing some really cool stuff and there's some technology, you know, I've, I've applied for this very cool payments ring on Kickstarter that scans your fingerprint as you put it on so that someone else can't use it and I can tap my hand to make a payment for things. So now I don't even need my phone, right? So there's, there's new technology that's coming out all the time. And my advice to uh, your husband and, and other people of the world who are like, oh, I really don't want to change the fact that people don't go back should tell you that change is good as far as this is concerned, right? So try as much as you can, get into it, and I think your life will be pleasantly improved in a whole lot of different ways. Matt Collicote is VP of Strategy for Cards and Money Movement at FIS. That's it for today's show. Thanks for joining us for the season three premiere of Financial Futures, a production of Lower Street Media in collaboration with FIS. Join us next time as we speak with Jill Mason, Director of Business Transformation, Robotics and AI for FI Payments at FIS about how credit unions can harness the power of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm.